It's always sad to see someone's life spiraling out of control when it's so filled with promise and potential. You see it in an entertainment industry. You see people like Lindsay Lohan, you know, an actress in a popular child's movie like The Parent Trap. And then, years later, every time you turn on the news, you see the latest tragedy in her life, the latest poor decision, the latest police photo, the latest courtroom drama, as you see her life spiraling in the wrong direction. You see it in athletics. You see young men or young women with so much athletic ability, God-given talent, and because of poor decisions, ungodly decisions, they waste it all and, and, and never achieve what they were capable of achieving. It's, it's so sad when you see that happen. You see it in the music industry. Interesting to note that this past week, George Jones, the country music singer, the possum, he, he passed away. And it's interesting that when you read an account of his life, it never just talks about his music. As a matter of fact, most of the article talks about the spiral of dysfunction that he lived most of his life on, the, the destructive decisions. As a matter of fact, he was given the name No-Show Jones because in 1979 he missed 54 shows he was scheduled to perform because of substance abuse. He could not get it together to perform at that show. No-Show Jones. And, and his life was just a testimony of, of, of how ungodly decisions can, can wreck you. And it's always so sad to see. But here's what I want you to understand this morning. The downward destructive spiral of sin is not just for those in the entertainment field, not just for athletes that are high profile, not just for those in the music industry. Any one of us are capable of going down that road. As a matter of fact, we're going to study David this morning. The Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. And yet he made some ungodly decisions and went down that downward spiral of sin. So keeping that in mind, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 27. 1 Samuel chapter 27. And here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to focus on chapters 27, a little bit at the beginning of chapter 28, and then chapters 29 and 30. And we're going to skip most of chapter 28, but we'll get to that next week, because that's a, it's a sermon in and of itself, dealing with Saul and the witch of Endor and all of that, so we'll get to that next week. But this morning we're going to begin in chapter 27 of 1 Samuel. I want to ask you, if you're physically able today, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. The Bible says, Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will disappear, searching, uh, despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So David arose and crossed over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, 
each with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. Now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If now I've found favor in your sight, let them give me a place in one of the cities in the country that I may live there, for why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. The number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Let's pray together. Father, we pause to give you glory. Lord, as we sang earlier, your name is a strong and mighty tower. We praise you. We worship you. You are the one true God. There is none like you. There is none but you. And we want to proclaim as a faith family that you are our God. We love you. We adore you. We exalt you. This time is all about you. So, Father, I pray that you would work in in mighty ways. God, we need you to move. All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So, Holy Spirit of God, we ask you to take the Word of God and apply it to our hearts. I pray that we would be changed by this, this confrontation with truth. I ask that you would establish my steps in your word, and we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, the Bible records in 1 Samuel that Saul, the first king of Israel, was disobedient to the Lord. And so, the Lord decided to take the kingdom away from Saul and give it to a man after his own heart, a young man by the name of David. But after David was anointed to be the next king, there was still a time period when Saul was on the throne, recognized as the king by the rest of the nation of Israel. And during that time, before David came to the throne, Saul grew jealous of David to the point that he wanted to murder David. So Saul began to hunt David down. And and a large part of the book of 1 Samuel is this manhunt. Saul and his army trying to capture David, trying to kill David. And we've seen over and over again God has provided for David's deliverance. And we've even seen that the Lord gave David opportunity to kill Saul, to to take Saul's life. But David understood that Saul was anointed to be king by God and he knew that God would remove the kingdom from him in his time and in his way and give it to David in his time and in, in, in his way. So when David had an opportunity to kill Saul, he said, no, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. And he never takes his life and leaves it in God's hands. And so David reflects many noble qualities and characteristics, clinging to God, uh, trusting God, obeying God. But here in chapter 27, we see David begin a downward spiral of sin. Now, often when we think of David, we think his only black mark, his, his only dark moment was when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then killed her husband Uriah to cover it up over in 2 Samuel. That's what we think of. We think of David's failures. But we're going to see that David blew it way before 2 Samuel. He blew it here in 1 Samuel. And there are some things we can learn from David's downward spiral of sin. I think it's interesting to note that the Bible is a real book. 
And the only hero worship that the Bible allows is the worship of Jesus Christ. I mean, he's the only one worthy of worship and praise. He's perfect. He's uh, the one that came and died for our sins and rose from the grave, defeating death itself. He's the only one the Bible tells us to worship. All the other characters in the Bible are presented in all of their stark reality. We see their successes, but we also see their failures. And this is good, so that we might learn from the successes and be warned by their failures. So I want to make four uh, statements about the downward spiral of sin that we see played out in David's life, and then make some application to all of us in this room. First of all, I want to comment on the beginning of the downward spiral. How does the downward spiral of sin begin? We're going to see this uh, played out in David's uh, life. First of all, you need to understand that David was under immense pressure. Look what the Bible says there in chapter 27, verse 1. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel. So David says, Listen, Saul's going to keep hunting me down until he kills me. I've got I've to get away. I've got to escape. And so he goes again to the Philistines. Now, earlier in 1 Samuel, David went to the Philistines. It was an unwise move, but we said, okay, he was desperate, and God delivered him from being killed by the Philistines. And so, you know, God watched over him, even though he made an unwise move. Well, here, he makes an un- unwise move again. He goes back to the Philistines, even though God had been protecting him when he lived in the wilderness. And so, David makes unwise move, move number two related to going to the Philistines, the enemies of Israel, and he makes it because of the immense pressure he was living under. Now, here's the application for you and for me. Life is hard, right? And sometimes life can be absolutely overwhelming and full of stress and strain and anxiety. And when we are in those stress-filled moments, when we're in that pressure cooker of life, we are prone to make some very poor decisions. The, the stress and the strain can, can bring us to a point where we're not thinking clearly. And we can make some unwise decisions in those moments. So here's the, the perfect formula for the downward spiral of sin. Immense pressure, and then look at the second thing. David was not speaking truth to himself. David was not speaking truth to himself. Look what it says in verse 1. Then David said to himself, you ever talk to yourself? Now maybe you don't talk to yourself out loud, but you know what? We all talk to ourselves. There's always this inner dialogue with ourselves that's going on in our day-to-day life. And David is talking to himself. And he says something to himself that is false. Look what he says. Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. That word perish is an interesting word. It's the word that literally means swept away. Swept away. Since I'm going to be swept away, I'm going to, be, I'm going to perish, I'm going to be destroyed by Saul. Now here's why that's an interesting word choice. The same word was used over in chapter 26, verse 10. So turn back with me to the previous chapter. This is when David's in the camp of Saul with Abishai. God had caused Saul and his men to fall under a deep sleep. And Abishai says, listen, we can kill Saul right now. Right now, and I'll do the dirty work. I'll put the spear through him for you. And David says in verse 9 to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, 
as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down into battle and perish. Same word, swept away. So David says, I know that God named me to be the next king. God's going to take care of Saul, and God will one day sweep Saul away. But look, shortly thereafter, David's saying something very different to himself. He's saying, I'm going to be swept away. Saul's going to get me. He was not speaking truth to himself because, see, God had revealed to David over and over again, you're going to be the next king. For example, over in chapter 16, Samuel anointed David with oil, conveying that God had chosen him as the next king of Israel. Chapter 23, verse 17, Jonathan, Saul's son, reminded David that he would be the next king. Chapter 25, verse 30, Abigail, Nabal's wife, reminded David that the Lord would appoint him as ruler over Israel. Even Saul, in chapter 24, verse 20, said that David would surely be the next king. David had promised, I mean, God had promised David, you'll be the next king. And and God kept giving David these reassurances, you're going to be the next king. But instead of dwelling on that truth and holding on to that truth, David begins to speak untruths to himself. And he loses sight of the truth. And he says, surely I will be swept away. Listen to me. We need to take hold of and keep hold of the truth. Because when we are detached from truth, we are prone to make some really foolish decisions. We don't let the the, the truth of God uh, saturate our lives. We are prone to to destruction. So here's the perfect formula. Ready? For destruction. When you are overwhelmed and detached from truth, you are headed for destruction. When you're overwhelmed and detached from truth, you're headed for destruction. When you are under the pressures of life and you don't remember what God has said, you don't remember the truth of the Word of God, you are prone to make some very, very unwise decisions. That's what happened with David. This was the the beginning of the downward spiral. You've heard the statement, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And the downward spiral of sin can start with just one foolish step in the wrong direction. That's what happens with David. He's under immense pressure, and in the midst of that pressure, he he speaks himself lies instead of speaking to himself truth. And based upon that, he makes some unwise decisions. That's the the beginning of the downward spiral. But secondly, we see the depths of the downward spiral. The depths of the downward spiral. Just how far can you go when when you ignore the truth of God? Well, David went went way down. uh, Way down deep in this downward spiral of sin. But how do you know that? Well, first of all, we know that because he practiced polygamy. He practiced polygamy. Look what the Bible says there in verse 2. He runs back to the Philistines. So he rose and crossed over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. Remember, uh, Gath was a city in, in, uh, in Philistia, and the Philistines were the sworn arch enemies of Israel. David had fought against their champion Goliath, and David had led armies against the Philistine armies, and now he's running to find cover with the enemy. It says there in verse 3, that David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each with his household, even David with his, notice this, two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. Now, we know that David was married to Saul's daughter named Michael. 
But Saul, probably because of spite for David, took uh, Michael and gave her to another man. So he lost that wife. And then he marries uh, this Jezreelitess. Uh, her name is Ahinoam. We don't know much about her. It's, it's sort of interesting to note that Jezreel is where Jezebel was from, and, and, and she was a wicked queen later on in the future of Israel. But we don't know much about Ahinoam uh, at all, but David was married to her. But then he had another wife named Abigail. Now, who was Abigail? You remember last week in chapter 25, the story of Nabal? Uh, David's men lived in the wilderness, and they protected Nabal's sheep and protected Nabal's men from raiders. And so when David and his men needed some supplies, David sent his men to Nabal and says, Will you ask Nabal, this wealthy man, if he could spare some supplies for us? So David's men come to Nabal, and they say, Nabal, could you spare some supplies? And Nabal says, Who is David? Who's the son of Jesse? I'm not giving you anything. And so the men go back and tell David, He's not going to help us at all. David flies into a rage. Remember this last week? He puts on a sword, gets 400 men, is going to go show Nabal who's boss. Well, Nabal's wife, Abigail, here's what's happening. And she uh, gets to David before he gets to Nabal and convinces him he should not take matters into his own hands, that the Lord will take care of it. And she spares David from this sinful act of vengeance. And he listens to her and does not go and kill Nabal. Well, he left it in God's hands, and God took care of Nabal. The Bible says shortly thereafter, Nabal died suddenly as judgment from God. And so now, Abigail's a widow. And David says, you know, she's attractive, she's wise, I think she needs to be my wife. And he takes a second wife. We're going to see in 2 Samuel, you'll see in 2 Samuel, that he took uh, another wife, and more wives. And so, we see that David was a polygamist. He had more than one wife. Now, People read a text like this, and they say, well, the Bible doesn't say it was wrong. It doesn't say it, was, it says he had two wives. That's all it says. Well, listen, this is a narrative passage of Scripture. The Bible's not giving us commentary on right and wrong. It's just telling us what happened. Just because it says it happened doesn't mean that God allows it. It's just telling us how things played out. If you want to know what God's intention is for marriage, look at the rest of the Bible. And the rest of the Bible clearly condemns polygamy. As a matter of fact, if you go all the way back to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden, you see Adam there in the garden, and God took not two ribs from his side, not three ribs from his side. He took how many ribs from the side of Adam? One. And he made uh, Eve. And he gave Adam one wife. And they became one flesh. That is God's intention. One man, one woman, married together in a one flesh union until death alone should part them. That is God's uh, biblical intention for marriage. So, anything beyond that is sinful and wrong. But we see in the, the history of Israel and the history of humanity that people have perverted God's original intention for marriage and have started doing things like polygamy. More than one wife. And we see David even falling under this perversion. And can I just tell you this? The, 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 the biblical definition of marriage is under attack in our society today. Have you noticed? There's a, 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 a loud, vigorous debate right now happening in our culture about gay marriage. And the proponents of gay marriage are saying, Hey, listen, if, 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 if two people want to get married regardless of sexual orientation or if they're the same gender, they should be able to get married. And, and no one should say they can't get married. Listen to me carefully. 
the same arguments used for gay marriage will in the very near future in our nation be used to defend polygamy. Same arguments. They can say, well, listen, if one man and three women want to get married, who are we to say they can't get married? They love each other. Let them get married. The same arguments used to, to, to defend the idea of gay marriage will be the same arguments used to defend the idea of polygamy. It's coming in our nation. You just better be ready for it. It's, it's coming. Because the idea that there should be one woman, one man, in a one flesh union until death alone should part them is an idea that is under attack in our culture. And men love to twist and pervert that idea and, per, and pervert that intention. And David's doing it. As a matter of fact, over in Deuteronomy, when it talks about instructions for the king, it says a king should not multiply wives. Shouldn't do that. And David here is ignoring the clear dictates and commands and expectations of God. He's going down that wrong path, that spiraling path. He is practicing polygamy. It is a sin. But not only that, David murdered innocents to protect himself. He murdered innocents to protect himself. Look what happens in verse 5. Then David said to Achish, if now I've found favor in your sight, let them give me a place in one of the cities in the country that I may live there. For why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. The number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites. For they were the inhabitants of the land from ancient times as you come to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. David attacked the land and did not, watch this, leave a man or a woman alive. This is David, the man after God's own heart. So wait, why did he kill everybody? Look what it says next. He took away the sheep, the cattle, the donkeys, the camels, the clothing. Then he returned and came to Achish. Now Achish said, where have you made a raid today? And David said, lying against the Negev of Judah and against the Negev of the Jer Jeremelites and against the Negev of the Kenites. These were tribes that lived in close proximity to the Israelites and who were friendly with the Israelites. And so David's telling uh, Achish, I'm killing those tribes near Israel, those friendly with Israel. It says, verse 11, David did not leave a man or a woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, Otherwise, they will tell about us, saying, So has David done, and so has been his practice all the time he's lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achash believed David, saying, Surely he has made himself odious among his people Israel, therefore he will become my servant forever. So David is, is perpetrating this ruse. He's saying, Hey, Achash, I'm killing all of your enemies, all of Israel's friends. I, I'm not against you, I'm against Israel. And he's lying, he's killing other tribes. But to cover up his deception, he kills every man and woman. This is not divine sanction. This is David just covering his hide. That, that's what's happening here. I like what Dale Ralph Davis writes. There seems to be a negative cast behind the human slaughter of David's raids. I'm not trying to foist an alien moral standard on an ancient episode, but the writer himself tells us that the rationale for the human butchery was not a God-directed ban, but David's need to keep his front intact with Akesh. Ordinarily, Davis writes, raiders tried to avoid bloodshed. This was not common among raiders to kill every man and woman. Case in point, turn to chapter 30 with me. Chapter 30, verse 1. We'll get to this story a little bit more in a moment. Let me show you one thing. 
It happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day. The Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag. This is David's town. And burned it with fire. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone. See the contrast there? Chapter 27, David makes a raid, kills every man and woman. Chapter 30, the Amalekites, the pagan Amalekites go on a raid, and they keep the, 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 the folks alive. They didn't kill anyone. And so we see by David's murderous protection of his own life, he is spiraling into the depths of sin. And here's the, the truth that I want you to grasp hold of, uh, because what I'm about to say, I want you to hear me, what I'm about to say, some of you don't believe. And, 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 you, and you disbelieve this to your own peril. Listen to me. We are capable of great evil when we begin to make godless decisions. When David begins to make godless decisions, God's nowhere to be found in these texts. He's not talking to God at all. He's not seeking God at all. He's just doing his own thing, surviving by his wits. And when we begin to make godless decisions, we are capable, just like David, of, of great evil. Say, not me. You know what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians? It says, let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I'll never go down that road. I'll, I'll never spiral downward into the, 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 the deep recesses of sin. That'll never happen to me. The greatest weakness sometimes is an unguarded strength. And when you think it can't happen to you, you have a target on your back and the enemy will come after you. He loves self-confidence. He loves it when folks say, it can't happen to me. And they live an unguarded life. He loves that. And I want you to understand that David was a man after God's own heart. And here he is, a polygamist, killing innocent folks to protect himself. Great evil. And you and I, are capable of great evil. Notice in verse 7 how long, of chapter 27, notice how long this behavior lasts. The number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months, 16 months. Say, wait, how long can somebody backslide? At least 16 months. At least 16 months. And so we see the depths of sin, the, the depths of the downward spiral. We are capable of great evil. We need to understand that and be on guard. Number three. I want to talk to you for a moment about the consequences of the downward spiral. We've seen how it begins, and we've seen how far it'll take you. But, but third, I want to show you the consequences of the downward spiral. First of all, David was back into a corner. Look at chapter 28, verse 1. It came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. David's people. And Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Uh-oh. David's seeking refuge among the Philistines, and now he's made the bodyguard for the king, and the king's going to attack Israel. This is going to put David in a very precarious position. Because look what happens in chapter 29, verse 1. The Bible says, Now the Philistines gathered together with all their armies to Aphek while the Israelites were camping by the spring which is in Jezreel. And the 
lords of the Philistines were proceeding on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were proceeding on in the rear with Achish. So they're actually marching in the Philistine army, marching to fight the Israelites. And the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me these days, or rather these years, and I have found no fault in him from the day he deserted to me to this day? So David is marching in the ranks of the Philistines. Now here's the question. If it came down to it, would David fight the Israelites? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. I want to, with my heart, say I don't think he would have. I don't think he would have fought the Israelites. But he's in a tough position. Because in the battle, he either has to fight the Israelites or be overwhelmed by the Philistines. The moment that he did not lift his sword against the Israelites, the Philistines would turn on him. And he only has 600 men. And there's thousands of Philistines. So he's between a rock and a hard place. And listen to me, sin will do that to you. Sin will take you to a place where there are no good options. No good options. That's what happens with David. But God graciously intervenes. The Philistines say to Achish, listen, David is a, is a fierce warrior. He's fought against us for years. Why should we risk him tur- uh, uh, turning on us and, and, and destroying us? We don't need to let him march with us. So Achish lets David and his men go home. He's no longer forced to make that decision to fight Israel or to be overwhelmed by the Philistines. He, he, he's, he's delivered from that by God. But notice, he was in a precarious position. He was back into a corner. And not only that, we see that David reaped what he sowed. So how did David make his living in chapter 27? By raiding tribes, taking all their stuff, and killing everybody. Look what happens in chapter 30, verse 1. It happened that when David and his men came to Ziklag, they're marching back from the front lines. On the third day, the Amalekites, which is one of the tribes that David attacked, the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag, had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. They took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, carried them off and went, went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. What's happening here? David is getting a taste of his own medicine. The Bible says, listen to me, Galatians, the Bible says that what a man sows, this he will also reap. And David had been sowing destruction, living by raiding other tribes. And now he experiences the reaping. The Amalekites come and do to him what he had been doing to others. He reaped what he sowed. And when you turn your back upon God and make unwise, ungodly decisions, you are are sowing. And what you will reap will be painful. Which leads me to the next consequence. He he lost his credibility. Look in verse 6. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people, his men, his loyal men, the people, it says, spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and daughters. So these men of David said, you know what, David, you're a bad leader. If it wasn't for you, we could have been here and protected our families, protected our holdings, but you're a terrible leader. And they even talked of stoning David. Think about that. Stoning their leader. They love David. They would follow David anywhere, but now they want to kill him. Why? 
Sin had caused David to lose his credibility. He had made unwise decisions, foolish decisions, and now uh, he was reaping the consequences, and he lost his credibility before the men. And when you are involved in a downward spiral of sin, sooner or later you will lose your credibility with others. It's going to happen. So let me give you the statement. It's not original with me. I don't know where it originally came from. I've heard many different preachers say this. I've read it. But here it is. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, it will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will always cost you more than you want to pay. Always. Those are the consequences of the downward spiral. You can't walk away from God and expect nothing bad to come of it. But I want to close with some good news. We've talked about how the downward spiral begins. We've talked about the depths of the downward spiral and and the consequences of the downward spiral. But here's the good news. There is a way out of the downward spiral. There's a way out of the downward spiral. Look what happens in this text. We see David find his way out. First of all, David remembered his God. Look in uh, verse uh, 6 of chapter 30. The people are distressed. They want to stone him. But the last part of that verse, the Bible says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. David remembered that he had a relationship with God for the first time. I mean, it's been months, and this is the first mention of God for chapters. And all of a sudden, David, in the pit of despair, David remembers his God. He turns to his God. He remembers that he was a child of God. If you want to find your way out of the downward spiral, you've got to remember that you're a child of God. If you're a child of God, you've got to remember that you're his. Remember where to go. Secondly, David ran to his God. Look in verse 6. But David strengthened himself. Now that word strengthened himself in the Hebrew could be translated literally to grasp hold of tightly. So we could read this verse like this. But David grasped hold of tightly the Lord. Grasped the Lord tightly and held on to him. That's what that word means. So not only does David remember that the Lord is his God, he, he clings to him. He says, God, I need you now. I'm coming back to you. I'm going to hold on to you. He, he clings to God in the midst of his despair. He ran to his God. Third, David prayed to his God. Look in chapter 30, verse 7. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, please bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. The ephod was a priestly garment, and and within that garment it held two stones called the Urim and Thummim, which were used to discern God's will. So now for the first time in a while, David says, let's see what God wants us to do. And look what he says there in verse uh, 8. David inquired of the Lord. Now, don't you think it would have been wise for him to do that months ago? Before he went to the Philistines and before he started killing innocent people, don't you think it would have been wise for David to inquire of the Lord before all that happened? But he doesn't. Here, he begins to pray again and ask God for his guidance. David prayed. He called out to his God. And then forth, David obeyed his God. Look in verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 8. David said, Shall I... Asking the Lord, shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? 
And he said to him, Pursue, for you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. So, verse 9, David went. He and the 600 men who were with him and came to the brook Besor. So God says, Go. And what does David do? He goes. He begins to obey. David obeyed his God. And that is the way out of the downward spiral. You remember, you're his, you run to him and cling to him, you pray to him, and you obey him. And, and that will cause God to chart a new trajectory for your life. Now, what I'm talking about here is more than just being sorry for your sins. Or more than just being sorry you've been caught. I'm talking about adjusting your life. Think about the prodigal son. Over in Luke 15, Jesus tells this parable of a young man that went to his father and says, I want my inheritance now. So the father gives him all of his inheritance. He goes into a distant land. He wastes it all with wild living. And then the Bible says when he runs out of resources, runs out of money, runs out of food, he's feeding himself on pig slop. And the Bible says something very interesting. The Bible says he came to his senses. Now, what happened next is crucial. He got up and returned to the Father. Now, I want you to know, I believe it's possible to come to your senses and then continue to turn your back to God. I've seen people that have come to their senses, they, 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 they're, they're caught in their sin, They've been confronted with their sin. They know that they are not right with God. They come to their senses and they keep on down that pathway. I've seen others come to their senses and say, No, this is not right. And they run to the Father. So I'm not talking about just coming to your senses. I'm talking about putting some feet to your faith. I'm talking about taking some action and saying, This is not right. This is wrong. I'm, I'm going the wrong direction. I will stop and I will turn, and I will run to God, and I will pray to God, and I will obey God. I'm going to let Him chart a new direction for my life. That's the way out of the downward spiral. I like what Chuck Swindoll writes. Dark days call for right thinking and vertical focus. That's what David learns at this moment in his life. He learns that this despondency isn't designed to throw him on his back and suck him under it's designed to bring him to his knees so he will look up. You've seen perhaps a movie or a television show with a pilot in a plane and, and the plane is headed uh, for a crash, it's in a nosedive. And you hear someone say something like this, pull up, pull up. Listen to me. When you are in a spiritual nosedive, you don't need to pull up. You need to look up. You need to remember who God is and cling to Him like you never have before and call out to Him and obey Him in your life. That's the way out of the downward spiral. And by the way, aren't you glad there's a way out? Aren't you glad as long as we are drawing breath and our hearts are beating we can run to the mercy and grace of God. And God is not just the God of a second chance. He gives us a whole lot more chances than that. So, we see David come to his senses. And he looks up. And he runs to God. 
That's the way out of the downward spiral. There is a way of escape. There is a way out. You don't have to let the downward spiral of sin define you for the rest of your days. By the power and the grace of God, you can break free from that and go in a new direction for His glory. I want to give you just three real quick words of application. Three different groups in this room I want to speak to just very, very briefly. Number one, maybe you're here and you say, wait, uh, I'm not in a downward spiral right now. Can I just tell you this? Be on guard. Let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't think it can't happen to you. Be on guard. Live a protected life. Have some accountability. Have some relationships that, with people that can speak into your life and, and keep you going down the right path. Be on guard. It's foolish to think that you're not capable of great evil. Secondly, maybe you're in the downward spiral of sin right now. I mean, as I've been speaking to you, the Spirit of God has gripped your heart and said, He's talking to you. He's talking to you. You're in the downward spiral right now. Can I just tell you this? Look up. There's grace and mercy available if you will just look up. If you'll just look up, it's there. You can be set free. Look up. And then third, maybe you're here today and you've got some downward spirals of sin in your past that you just can't get over. Maybe it's something that just happened in your life or maybe it's something that happened a long time ago, but the feelings of guilt are overwhelming. And you just can't live with freedom and joy and peace because of that guilt. So if you're in that third group this morning, here's what I say to you. Survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Because whatever that sin is in your past, whatever that destruction is, that dysfunction is in your past, Jesus died for it on the cross. Jesus shed his blood so all of it could be washed away. Even the guilt and the shame, he wants to wash it away. And so if you are eaten up with guilt and you're a child of God, look to the cross and say, God has taken that guilt away. And live in that freedom and that joy. We've all got some destructive destructive spirals in our past, don't we? Who in here would not hang their head in shame if a replay of our life was shown up on the video screen? We've all got some destructive spirals in our past, but there is grace and mercy, and Jesus died for those sins on the cross. We don't have to live under the weight of guilt and shame. It's been washed in the blood of the Lamb. So live like it. So whatever the Lord's been doing in your life, Ask God to deliver you or keep you from the destructive downward spiral of sin.